Hello, everyone, and welcome to On the Safe Side, a monthly podcast hosted by the editors of Safety and Health Magazine, the official magazine of the National Safety Council. This is Kevin Drewley, Associate Editor at Safety and Health, and with me, as always, are colleagues and fellow Associate Editors, Alan Ferguson and Barry Botino. This is our August 2022 episode, number 30 if you're keeping score at home. Wherever or however you're listening today, we thank you for spending some time with us. It's greatly appreciated. In this month's episode, Alan will take us on a deep dive into his feature story covering incident investigations, which appears in our August issue. We also will be joined by Faye Caldwell, a Houston-based employment law attorney and member of NSC's Alcohol, Drugs, and Impairment Division. Faye will discuss topics related to impairment and some key legal matters workers and employers should know. Also, the three of us will share an important item that we learned this past month, either on the job or away from work. Is everybody ready? Let's get this episode rolling. Each month here at On the Safe Side, we take a look at a feature story from the latest issue of Safety and Health magazine, which we call our Deep Dive segment. In the August issue, Alan writes about incident investigations. When an injury, incident, or near miss occurs, incident investigations can help the employer determine the why behind these scenarios, and as OSHA states, can allow the organization to, quote, implement the corrective actions necessary to prevent future incidents, unquote. Alan, we thank you as always for your insights. Could you please take your mark and lead us on this latest deep dive? Yes, I will, and thank you so much for that introduction. Um, Obviously, no one wants an incident to happen, especially something serious, but incidents and even near misses or other occurrences are important to investigate for a few different reasons. The most important reason is, of course, you want to prevent something from happening again, and you also want to take a closer look as to why it happened or is happening if it's a series of repeated incidents. Now, OSHA doesn't explicitly require employers to investigate incidents, but the agency strongly encourages it. And Joanne Dankert, a senior safety consultant here at the council, also pointed out that if you're an employer that needs to fill out a Form 301 incident report or something equivalent for each recordable injury or illness, you'll need to answer some questions. And a couple of those are what was the employee doing just before the incident occurred and what happened to tell us how the injury occurred. Also, at least a couple of states, California and Washington, Uh, require incident investigation. So that's something to keep in mind if you live in those states or work in those states. Um, And importantly, the sooner you find what may have caused an incident, the quicker you can get it fixed, corrected, or mitigated. And this is from a source, uh, as quote, as long as that risk is present and unmitigated, represents a realistic threat to the safety of people, property, and equipment, said Larry Perlman, a managing director at JMJ, a consulting company headquartered in Austin, Texas. Now, one key step in many incident investigations is interviews or getting written statements. You want to get the facts and find out what happened, Dankert said, but it's also important to set parameters on the information, said one source. You want the interviewee to tell you what they saw or what they did, but not give opinion or speculation. The story details a number of potential interview subjects during an investigation, where to conduct interviews, and why it's perhaps important to perform interviews one-on-one instead of in a group. The story also has a number of examples of questions an investigation should answer, and they're detailed in a concept that we journalists know very well. That's the five W's, who, what, where, when, and why. Another key part of incident investigations is timeliness. You want to start an investigation quickly because, as I write, memories may fade and the scene of an incident may get changed. You know, the evidence may get moved or discarded. 
quote, you want to understand the circumstances at that time, so you want to preserve things as best you can, said Kevin Donahue, senior safety consultant, Indianapolis-based consulting firm Safety Resources. Well, Alan, in your story, you state that OSHA advises looking beyond the immediate causes of an incident. Can you explain that and give some examples for our listeners? Of course. Um, what OSHA means is, for example, don't just conclude that a worker was careless or didn't follow a procedure, and that's that. Certainly, that may be part of an incident, but sometimes there are deeper underlying issues. And, and Perlman gave a great example using an incident at an auto parts factory. Nine of the ten machines on the factory floor rotated clockwise, but one went counterclockwise. And one day, a maintenance employee was working on the loan machine that rotated counterclockwise and stuck his hand inside and got a part of his hand amputated. And Perlman said, you could say, yeah, he shouldn't have had his finger in there. But he added, why did the employer have 10 pieces of equipment, nine working one way and one working the other way? And there's a term I heard recently, it's called eventuality. And in the aforementioned example, there was a state of eventuality there. When nine machines rotating one way and a lone one rotating another way, it may not cause a problem right away, but I think there's a reasonable chance that eventually someone was going to forget which way a machine rotated and something was going to happen. And Perlman gave another example of systemic issues, the backover fatality investigation that his company performed. They found that because of time pressures or scheduling needs, an employer was pushing trucks into service that didn't have backup cameras or other technologies to detect a person that's behind the vehicle. He said that case speaks to safety culture issues within an organization rather than simply driver pedestrian errors. So when the investigation is done, what should happen next? Um, this is an important question because Donahue said the biggest mistake is finding something wrong during an investigation and doing nothing with it or about it. An overlooked part of the investigation process is what comes after, Perlman said. That can be a cascading effect where changes are needed to training, standard operating procedures, and many other affected areas. And that's why it's key to share information on the results of an investigation, along with implementing corrective actions and tracking those corrective actions. Well, thank you once again, Alan, for your work on this story. Please feel free to check out Alan's article or other topics and news from around the safety world in the August issue of Safety and Health Magazine or by visiting www.safetyandhealthmagazine.com. Every safety professional has a unique story. So what's yours? Safety and Health Magazine wants to hear about your unique path into the occupational health and safety field for our My Story column. Email your submission to safehealth at nsc.org to share the road you traveled in your career journey of keeping workers safe and healthy. Increasing awareness and prevention of opioid misuse remains a prevalent and pressing topic for workplaces year-round, but it takes added attention in August, which is Overdose Awareness Month. For our latest edition of Five Questions With, we speak with Faye Caldwell, an employment law attorney, will help listeners understand a number of impairment-related topics through an employer lens. Faye is a member of a number of national and international drug and alcohol testing organizations and is a seasoned speaker on these matters. Our readers might remember her as a source in a story covering Delta-8 THC in the workforce, which appeared in the November issue of Safety and Health. Faye, welcome to the podcast. We thank you for joining us on The Safe Side. Thank you so much for having me. You are welcome. As mentioned, Overdose Awareness Month is upon us in August, and International Overdose Awareness Day is set for the end of the month, August 31st. So with that, we'd like to start by talking about employer policies against drug use in the workplace. 
How can employers make sure these are designed and implemented fairly and consistently? I think this is really a great place to start, Kevin. I, I, I will tell you of what is an employee. It's sort of, we, I always like, to, what's an employer to do? The first issue that I think is important is I believe every employer is concerned about safety, not only of their employees, but the public, their property, really their entire environment. So the first issue I recommend to employers when they start looking at, do I need a drug testing policy? If so, how it should take back is to, to for each employer to evaluate their own safety risk. What does their work, workplace look like? Do they have employees on the road? Do they have office staff? Do they have crane operators? The first is to sort of internalize for the company or the employer, what's their world look like? Because that's going to drive a lot of the decisions about what they want to do, how they want to do. Secondly, what they would like, what I encourage them to do is identify the employees that they wish to drug test. Could be everybody, don't misunderstand me, but it could also be a select group because they are seen as a little more high risk from drug use. So that's the next thing. Where are they located? You're going to hear me talking a little bit about the idea of identifying who the employees are, what they do, and where they are located. The next issue is really, I like to, to have buy-in with employees over a drug testing policy. It needs to be absolutely applied evenly to any individual job class. It can't, you can't be seen as favoritism. It has to be well explained. Most employees want a safe workspace. They, most of them want their employers to do drug testing so that they can be assured that they can go home to their families at the end of the day and, and avoid workplace accidents. So really, I, I advise talk to the employees, explain what you're doing, apply any drug testing um, policy and testing procedure evenly. Don't make a lot of uh, special exceptions because I'll guarantee you those are the ones you'll get to hear about later. So these are the ones that you, you want a fair and even program, balancing employee privacy, balancing risk in the workforce, and also the integrity and elements of fairness. Faye, for organizations who have yet to establish drug and alcohol testing programs, how would you advise these employers and what should they know from a legal standpoint before they get started? Have an understanding of an employer's, the employees that are working, their personnel. That's the first issue that it goes to a legal analysis that we'll get to. What we do know, as the NSC has demonstrated so many times, a workplace drug test program has a strong deterrent effect on the use of illegal drugs in the workplace. And frankly, also then when they go home, we don't want anyone using illegal drugs. Um, and we can start that in the workforce. So you first have to start off and looking, and we're going to get a little bit of this, of who are my people? Who are my employees? As an employer, do I have federally regulated employees? What are those categories? We'll get into that uh, perhaps in a little bit. Secondly, where do they work? We need to take, an, as every employer, an individualized risk at their company. 
how do they want to test? There's a lot of, you know, when? Pre-employment, very, very common. Post-accident, very, very common. Reasonable suspicion, random. So this is for, from a legal point of view, particularly in the random category, you're going to have some, as an employer, you're going to need to know whether, frankly, the state in which the employee works allows random testing. Because we're really talking about suspicionless drug testing when you have no idea whether anyone's using it. Some states allow it. Some states, frankly, do not. So you really have to look first up what they're doing, how they're doing. Federally regulated employees are important to recognize, but it's all mandated. So it's not a lot of employer decisions on it for how to run, in particular, a Department of Transportation drug testing program. I'm talking now about commercial driving license holders. I'm talking about pilots, railway workers. Then you need to engage and have a program that is going to be very comprehensive and 100% in compliance with DOT regulations, et cetera. You have to decide how you want to test legally. Do you want to use urine? Do you want to use hair? Do you want to use oral fluid? Most people aren't going to use blood, for example. And so the, if, if, for example, an employer cares about long-term usage, not just in the workshop, hair testing gives a big look back. However, for reasonable suspicion or post-accident, for example, you're going to probably want oral fluid or urine because you really want that snapshot in time at a particular point that you're interested in. You also have to look when you go to set up a program of each and every state in which an organization has employees. Multi-state drug testing programs, they're not challenging, but they have, there's a lot of focus on them. Some decisions could be one is to give, if there's multiple states, you have to look at the laws in each of the states. If in fact they have anything of individual requirements for drug testing, this is for non-federal uh, regulated employer, employees and how you wish to do that. So you really need to look at timing, when and, when and how, you, and then how, what type of sample type, what panel do you want to include? How, what drugs do you want to test for? If somebody has healthcare workers, they may be interested in quite a different panel than what is in the DOT panel, for example. And these are all individual decisions and each have legal ramifications um, and requirements that each employer has to look at. So you really have to examine the elements, decide what they want to try to include, and then go forward on that and design a program that again, is fair and equal for all of the affected employees. Now we realize it's difficult to condense federal statutes and legislations into bullet points, but what can you share about some additional law basics concerning workplace substance abuse that employers should know? Okay, you're right. That's kind of a big gulp to talk about all of this, but let's give it a whirl. And what we're going to try to do here is sensitize our listeners and understand, not definitive, we have 50 states. We're, we'd be here a long time if we talked about each of them, but let's sort of, let's first look at the federal landscape. So a lot of people think that federal drug testing is widespread. It covers a lot of people. And in sheer, in sheer numbers, it certainly does, but it's very restricted. Let's talk about under federal testing, you're really going to have two major categories. It's not 100%. You're going to have federal employees, um, people who work for the federal government. 
after 1986, these people are tested and they have one set of rules. The other, as I mentioned earlier, is the Department of Transportation and, the, and some various modes. You're gonna, you're gonna have the Railway Administration, the Federal um, Carrier Motor Safety Act people. You're gonna have the FAA doing pilots and flight attendants, railway workers, transit workers. You're gonna have some others. You're gonna have the US Coast Guard, not part of the DOT anymore, but they still are tested under the federal program and a couple of others, the, the Nuclear Regulatory Commission and some others have it. But the, only those people that the federal government has designated, called a designated testing position, are going to do it. So what does the federal look like? First off, they have pre-employment, they have random testing, they have reasonable suspicion for cause, and they have post-accident. If someone tests positive, there's a whole procedure about how you can get those people back in the work workforce through what's called affectionately a SAP program, substance abuse professionals. So that's the type of testing that's done for these designated positions. And it's also limited, they only, there's only a certain number of drugs. These are, so under the, the federally regulated drug testing program, there's exactly, it's told how to do it, what cutoffs to use and rights of each person. So it's, it is complex, but it's ex extraordinarily standard. So that it helps, and there are lots of people and organizations. If so if someone has it, it is required, it's an obligation of the employer to use this program and do it in accordance. And they are subject to audits. Laboratories are certified to do this. It's quite a, it's an involved process, but the good news, it doesn't change much. We have a lot of notice when that. Right now, there is only laboratories doing urine testing. We have oral fluid on the horizon and we probably have hair testing on the horizon. But as of right now, under federal regulated programs, it is urine testing only. So now let's turn a little bit to the rest. And this is, in the vernacular, maybe a bit of the Wild West. Every state has their own laws. Some of them have none. Some of them really don't speak to it. But for non-federally regulated testing, the states can determine what they're going to do. And a lot of them have done it. So there is this point. That's when we get into hair testing, oral fluid testing, oral fluid saliva for anyone who doesn't know. And we have urine. Um, things are coming. You have a much broader expanse of the number of drugs that can be tested for. It's not limited by what uh, SAMHSA has allowed. We have, and then we have individual requirements, which is why it's so important to know where your employee's at. If you're in certain states, an employer has to make certain notifications before they can test. Some states require an employer to tell what drugs they're gonna test for, what type of testing is gonna be done. Some of them go so far as when they give a result, how it's to be sent, certified mail. There's a, some require that the uh, employee be given a copy of it within certain minutes. Most, but not all, require the use of a medical review officer, to a trained medical professional. So there's lots of variations. And some allow drugs. And we're going to talk in a minute about cannabis and the changes in that. But as I think everyone to recognize that part of the thing is cannabis 
marijuana is his, the historic term, is now legal in many states. How does that change? So let's give an example of this. This is by far one of the biggest topics that's happening um, and has been going on for five to six years. And cannabis, I've got to tell you, requires special attention. Some states do not allow an employer to take adverse action just because somebody tests positive for, for cannabis. That is actually the trend. Any drug test in when it's given does not show impairment. It just shows that there's been exposure and use. So it is very much a changing landscape. And we're going to hit that uh, and talk about this is one of the biggest changes going on in the drug testing world. Increasingly, we are seeing that state, well, one state, and it's a big state, it's New York State, generally doesn't even allow testing to be done for cannabis, which forces employers to comply with the law to remove cannabis from their drug testing panel for those employees that are employed within the state of New York. This is causing a fair amount of procedural and organizational change of how to manage this process to make sure that it's compliant with state law. We watched some, for example, New Jersey's put some things in effect regarding workplace impairment experts. And we're seeing that go into effect. And there's a lot of, not a lot of clarity about a lot of these things. Uh, many states now say that if an employee uses what I'm gonna call off-duty, i.e. legal use of marijuana in a state that allows it, you can't take adverse action just because they test positive on a drug test, if you're allowed to test at all. They rather focus on impairment. So what are the similarities? And this is cannabis only. You generally can't, can't use on the job. An, employee can, an employer does not have to let their workers use cannabis on the job and the employee can't be impaired. Science and the laws don't quite match up and that's some of the challenges with cannabis testing. The tests do not demonstrate impairment. And that's one of the biggest issues. Now, let's talk about e easier stuff. Other than cannabis, drug testing goes forward. So even in New York, any other drug can be tested for. Cocaine, amphetamines, methamphetamine. This is a very cannabis-specific discussion, but it's a big one. It is the largestly used federally illegal drug. Remember, cannabis is federally still illegal, which is why under federal testing, you don't have to deal with any of this. Truck drivers and pilots, the idea that it's legal in their state, it doesn't make any difference. And so you really have to start with what type of job does my person do that I'm going to test? Do they fall under the federal testing? Do they fall under state testing? So it it's really is a challenge. And virtually, I would recommend that any employer that wants to should periodically have their legal counsel review, find out what are the... Uh, what are the problems that these things change? Cannabis literally is changing all the time as new voter initiatives and new legislation takes place. So that's the challenge with it. Long answer to you, I apologize, but it's a very complex subject. And I think most employers will need some help on that.
Well, staying with complex subjects, uh, as, as you alluded to in that previous interview with Safety and Health, you called uh, Delta 8 THC, quote, the hottest topic in hemp right now, unquote. Um, with that, just what can you tell listeners about the Delta 8 issue and what's the latest on the, this front? Okay, let's first take a little bit. What is Delta 8? In the marijuana plant or in the cannabis plant, there are over 100 cannabinoids. We're used to some of them. Delta 9 THC. That's what that's what, up until a few years ago, that's what people thought was cannabis. That is the major uh, cannabinoid that causes impairment. That's what you think of when you're thinking about smoking cannabis, that, you're, that a person's going to get a high from Delta 9 THC. 2018, Congress passed the Farm Bill, which sounds rather innocuous, in order to allow hemp production in this country and really was meant for farmers um, a lot. But they also made, removed from the Schedule One Controlled Substances Act anything but Delta 9 THC. And so, and it's, it's more complicated. I'm gonna give you the brief version and it allows as long as hemp, which is everything but Delta 9, is legal as long as the Delta 9 THC amount does not exceed 0.3% of dry weight. Huge, huge issues about this. So what most people know is hemp includes everything else, but often people think of what's used as CBD, um, which we all know is in creams and, and lots of other ways. It is not impairing. CBD does not cause an intoxicating effect. It does have other medical uses. But then because of the way the law is drafted, People got imaginative. So now things that start out as not Delta 9 THC, but predominantly it's CBD. Manufacturers are now derivatizing, synthesizing Delta 8 THC from CBD. What is Delta 8? So in its natural form, it's a very, very small percentage in the cannabis plant. No one uses it to get high because there's simply not enough of it there. So it has to be for the, what happened is it's enhanced. It's derivatized. Delta 9 THC is intoxicating. It is impairing. Controversy about what well, it's probably not quite as impairing as Delta 9 THC, but impairing nonetheless. And so the controversy that has been going on since this time is, is Delta 8 legal? Can it, is it okay when it's derived, uh, derived from CBD, whether when it's synthetic, is that okay? Can people use it? And there has been a lot of law, and this is something that's changing all the time. So first off, it was immensely unclear when last we spoke, Kevin, that the idea was whether or not it was actually a hemp product and therefore legal. But a lot of people didn't want. So states, many states have under state law, Delta 8 is illegal. And this is changing. Under some state laws, it is legal. But one of the biggest changes, to make it one of the hottest topics still, is very recently, a federal court of appeals, the Ninth Circuit, has come out definitively and said that Delta-8 is legal. We don't quite know too much about what the, the DEA says, the Drug Enforcement Agency, the FDA, or the U.S. Department of Agriculture, but that is the most current issue, is it may be legal. 
In fact, the Court of Appeals said yes. And the ability to challenge that, we don't quite know yet. This is this is like breaking news within the last month or two of what does that look like? What does that mean? So as we end up getting more and more Delta aid in the marketplace, you have to figure out a couple of things. One is if someone sets up a drug testing, does the lab they've chosen test for Delta aid? They, of course, want to verify they don't mix up Delta-8 and Delta-9, but most commercial laboratories would not do that. How they want to handle it. Do they want to, if they're allowed to, tell their employees they can't use it? These are, this is all an unintended consequence, I believe, from the 2018 Farm Bill. And we're still in the midst of it. There is there talk about amending the Farm Bill. There's talk. How far that will go, I really don't know. But... It's just one of those continuing topics that's impairing. It impacts safety in the workplace, and employers need to know about it. The other thing that's happening, although Delta-8 is a hot topic, other cannabinoids. Again, Delta-10, that is coming on the market. Things, And we really don't know much about the impairing effect. Many of these are impairing, but because there's no studies on it, we don't exactly know how much. Because in the native plant, there's no possibility of it getting really to enough to matter. So I think we're going to be dealing with Delta-8 and its progeny, the other cannabinoids, for some period of time. And I would invite most employers to really find out about it, look at a policy, again, determine what their state allows, and another management in the workplace for safety. Well, Faye, as we look down the road, are there other emerging issues that you see when it comes to drug testing? You know, there really are. It's a fascinating topic. Uh, DOT drug testing is now 30, over 30 years old, and the federal government's about 35. And by and large, not that there haven't been changes in it, but what are the differences? What do we see changing and what I sort of putting on my, uh, my magic cap and looking forward, things that I think are to keep an eye on. First, let's remind ourselves. Obviously, when drug testing started in the late 80s, early 90s, for example, cannabis, which is one of our emerging topics, was completely illegal. We all remember the 80s with the war on drugs. No drug use was acceptable. And now we have 37 states plus D.C. have medical marijuana laws. 19 states plus D.C. have recreational marijuana laws. Now, why do we have this and what's changed? Well, like many things in our world, I believe society has changed. So if we go back to the war on drugs in the 80s, there is some opinion that the previous criteria, i.e. illegality, may have been over-inclusive and not really targeted enough to see if there's really a safety risk. Do we need to nuance it? Is off-duty drug use when you're not impaired by you go to work something that employers have any rights to deal with? This is all happening. I don't think the answers are very clear, and most people are going to come down one way or another. Ancillary to the employment, but certainly impacting it, is really the idea of social justice, which were the populations most heavily impacted by the illegality of cannabis. Is that where we want to go? And you can see as laws are made, there's a lot of discussion about this, of where they want to go, what they want to do. What has happened is there is an increased focus on impairment, which is why I explained to New York, New Jersey, and the trend is that 
You never have to let a, a worker on the job impaired. The problem with that is there's no, there's no objective test currently as far as drug testing to determine impairment. There's also no standard. There's lots of issues on cannabis. What's the impairment pattern when someone smokes cannabis? What's the impairment pattern when someone has an edible that has cannabis in it? These are all making changes. And the trend is very definitively going towards impairment and not just pure illegality, because it is still legal, illegal federally. When states have been voting, this is voter initiatives, whether to allow cannabis, although some of them get overturned in the courts, by and large, the states, the voters in the states want cannabis legalized. That is a clear trend that we're seeing in this country. And I believe that we're going to see more of that. And this is very much a changing viewpoint. It is not one age group. If you look at polls about this, if you look at voter statistics of how they go forward, it's, it is overall, that is the trend of society. And that's something I think we're going to really see in the next five years. I think everyone knows that there's been lots of government or proposed legislation, particularly at the federal government, that has not yet been enacted, but they continue to propose. It is also a revenue source. It's a taxation issue. The states have been making you know, significant money on it. That probably pays in. But that, you know, and cannabis is the leading example of some of these changing viewpoints, but it's not the only one. What is happening in the states, and these are early trends, these are tea leaves now, is there is looking like a pivot away from zero tolerance. It's not legalization. It's not eliminating criminal action. But what is happening in some states is we're seeing an elimination or reducing of penalties for personal, non-commercial possessions of small amounts of controlled substances. And this is not limited to cannabis. So you look at Oregon, has, if for example, put into effect their Drug Addiction Treatment and Recovery Act. What happens? So really what happens, it's not, it's not a get out of jail free card. It's just a different sort of penalty. Quite frequently, they, they have the belief structure, the societal change has been that don't put a person in jail, rather get them treatment. And so if they go into treatment facilities, you're going to see a different outcome. And this is seeing, is getting some traction. It's early days yet, but it's a trend that I think is worth looking at and it ref reflects the societal change of a belief perhaps that total reliance on illegality and jail time may not serve society well. Everyone's going to have a different view on this. I am in no way proponents or, or not just reporting what's out there. And then there's some other, the last trend I want to talk about fits in again, and now we're really early days, is the idea of looking at traditional drugs and looking for medicinal effect. We're looking for, so first off, we certainly see that in cannabis. CBD, which was illegal before 2000, now has a prescription drug, Epidiolex, for epilepsy that the FDA has, has put out. Just so, you know, that's, that, well, the FDA that, that has put out to use. It's a prescription now. Secondly, we're seeing, again, interest in studying. And right now, the biggest one is psychedelics which are not typically tested for in the workplace. 
under most cases, but are receiving a lot of attention because we're seeing some papers out of John Hopkins asking for like psilocybin, my magic mushrooms is what people think of them, that can cause an altered state of consciousness, change in perception, mood, and cognitive processes. And some of those they're seen with, you know, PTSD. Um, some of these other, they're seen, they are in the early studies, they're seeing some, perhaps they consider promising use of them. So we're going to see this idea of looking at traditionally illegal drugs and seeing if there's benefit, particularly in a medical sense. And this has really been seen so far in psilocybin, the mushrooms. So what, it, what it, does that mean it gets legalized? Not really yet. Not, that's not widespread. But what we are seeing is numerous state and local governments move to deprioritize or reduce the penalties for personal or, or um, use or possession of, for example, psilocybin. And that's sort of the first, I'm, I'm going to call it toe in the water to talk about as we see yet another change. Will this gain traction? I honestly don't know. But it is certainly one of the emerging trends and reflects the idea that we are in a time of change. We are really seeing the idea of going, it's illegal, and that ends the conversation, to looking at a more nuanced approach. And I, it'll be some interesting times as we move forward in this area. Well, thank you, Faye, very much for sharing your insights and expertise with us on these topics. As always, great to have you with us uh, and joining us on the safe side. Thank you for having me. Henry Ford once said, anyone who keeps learning stays young. And on this portion of the podcast this month, we all discuss the fountain of youth that we've discovered in our What Did We Learn segment. I'll get things started this month. I'm working on a story about listening as it pertains to safety professionals. And one interesting thing that one of my sources said is we may hear someone what someone is saying, but are we really listening to them? And I think the most important thing that, that I came across was two sources that I spoke with said that there's an easy way to know if you're doing it right, to know if you're being a good listener. And it's really simple. You know you're being a good listener if people come to you. Uh, they could be someone coming to you with a question. It could be someone coming to you with a concern. And in some cases, one of my sources said it could be something that someone wants to confide in you. This person said that He's heard from several employees that he's worked with about concerns that they don't share with anyone else. So that's when he, he knows he's doing it well. And also really learned that listening is a great way to build trust, uh, not only among workers, but among your colleagues as well. Um, Alan, what have you learned this month? Well, I, I've learned that trenching safety continues to be a pernicious issue and there have been 22 de trenching deaths or trenching related deaths in the uh, first six months or so of this year. And that's seven more than in all of 2021 combined. And in response, OSHA is enhancing its enforcement efforts and outreach efforts. And the story about it can be found by typing trench into the search bar at safetyandhealthmagazine.com. And there you can find a lot of links to information and resources for both employers and workers. Uh, what about you, Kevin? Well, I had sort of learned slash relearned a few things when it pertains to elevator and escalator safety and working on a story about that for our sister publication, Family Safety and Health. And 
I know we mentioned this is episode 30 and gosh, probably for the first, well, outside of the first one, maybe for the, for episodes two through 18 or 20, we had a, a disclaimer in our, in our intro to the podcast, basically assuming that most everyone was listening to us from the comforter comfort of their own homes. But we know now that many workplaces continue to open up, have opened up, ditto for hotel stays, um, air travel. So, I mean, we're seeing those elevators and escalators again. So certainly, um, and it kind of alludes to this in the story that this can be a, a, a second nature form of transportation. And it mentions, I believe that according to one association, Americans travel two and a half billion miles by elevator and escalator in a given year. But it was just good to see some of these re- refresher items, um, just because again, we're, we're encountering them more and more, whether it's the workplace or via public transportation. So certainly things like, you know, not sitting on the steps, not using a closed or an operative escalator as a stairway. Um, but also just maybe things that we don't think about the importance of once you get off that escalator, just to keep moving, you, you don't want to back things up behind you or risk someone, you know, sliding off or this or that. So, uh, again, it was good to, to get back and be inversed in those things. Well, thank you guys for sharing those insights about what you've learned. And we want to hear from our listeners. Is there something important that you learned this month? Share it with us via email at safehealth at nsc.org, or you can use the hashtag SafeSide on social media. Thank you so much for listening to this month's episode. We understand your time is valuable, and we appreciate you spending it with us. If you'd like to send us some feedback, email us at safehealth@nsc.org. We'd also appreciate you sharing a rating and a review of this podcast. To find stories such as Alan's Incident Investigations feature and the latest news from around the occupational safety world, visit us online at safetyandhealthmagazine.com. You can also follow us on various social media channels, including Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and LinkedIn. Original music for this podcast was composed by Steve Maslin. A big thank you to our friend Steve. We'll be back next month with another episode to have more safety-related discussions, talk to trusted voices from around the profession, and hopefully make you smile for a bit. Feel free to tell a fellow safety pro about this podcast. And remember, stay on the safe side.